Hello, my name is Zoltan Chigesh, and this is Zoltan's podcast on coaching. In this series, I'm talking with internationally renowned coaching scientists and coaches. We explore their personal and professional insights on the science of coaching and on the helping professions. Are you interested in how they got close to this profession? Are you curious about the new frontiers they are exploring right now? Join me and listen to the conversation. Inspiration and some fun is ahead. Welcome. I'm very happy to have you here. And my guest for today's session is Bob Garvey, a professor emeritus, one of the founders of EMCC, uh, an author with a number of books out there. I'm happy to have you, Bob. Thank you. It's very nice to be here, Zolly. Thank you. Thank you for asking me. It's good. Yep. And our aim with this podcast, with this series, is to take a sneak peek behind the scenes of coaching research, what is going on in the places where all the science is grown up. That's why I invited you. And thank you again for being here with us. Take your opinion on what's going on in the world of coaching or mentoring science. What are the research trends here? And I'm happy to have all of your insights here. And we can just get into the middle of it. I would love to have a few words about you. And uh-huh. I think if I have missed from this quick introduction, what should we know about you that others may not be aware of? I live in the city of York in the northeast of the UK, and it's a very historic city. And if you've never been here uh, visiting, you should, because most people who come to the UK go to London, then they get on the train and go to Edinburgh. And York is exactly halfway and very few people stop. And yet it's the most beautiful city, very historic. It's got an ancient wall that still goes all the way around and it's very nice. Uh, And I've lived here for about 30 years. I'm obsessed with coaching and mentoring. Many years ago, I uh, did a PhD on mentoring. It was called Mentoring in the Marketplace, Studies of Learning at Work. I got very interested in that and got very interested in the coaching world at the same time and have been involved kind of ever since. I read about it. I write about it. I talk about it. I have it done to me. I do it to people. I research it. And actually, seriously, it's a way of life for me, really. So I see coaching and mentoring as a way of relating rather than a set of tools in a toolbox. And I hate that expression. It's a tool. I can't, I just won't use it because tools sound like you do something to somebody and you don't really. You engage in a conversation. That's me. And I live in the city of York with my cat called Fergus, who's very nice. My cat. And what brought you to the topic of coaching and mentoring? So what initiated your PhD research? Right. I have to go back a long way. In a former life, I was a school teacher, early years children, young children. In fact, I was the only male teacher of five-year-olds in London at the time. Mm -hmm. I got asked to go on a course. Uh, This course was about science education for young children. What I learned fundamentally on that course was a completely different approach to education, which was not about teaching stuff but about engaging in what they called at the time process of inquiry. And that meant that what you did is you asked questions. For an example, 
young kids bring things into school that they find that they think are interesting and they kind of give it to the teacher, don't they? So they might come in with a stick, you know, well, I found this stick, sir. And you go, well, that's a lovely stick. Now, in the old days, you'd go, that's a lovely stick. Go and put it on the nature table. But what I used to do was that's really interesting stick. Where did you find it? What else was around it? What colour would you call it? What do you notice about the pattern or the shape of the buds? What are they doing? Are they opposite each other or are they doing something else? What are the colours of them? And you would start asking questions like that to encourage the children to observe. Then you might set up science terms, what you would call a fair test to test something about this thing, or you might put it in water to see whether it grows and various things like that. So I learned this on this course. That's the way I started to work with children, inquiry-based. And I carried on doing that. Eventually, I became what's called an advisory teacher for science education for the whole of London. And I joined the team of people who taught me the course. And I was outgoing and doing all this work with teachers and children in schools. It sort of grew from there. Eventually, I left teaching because I could see what was happening with government interference in the education system, which was to create this thing called the national curriculum, where it started to become specified what you would teach children. And I couldn't bear that idea. We have um, interesting discussions around that here in Hungary. Yeah, I couldn't bear that because... One of the great things about the education system that I grew up in was the ability that teachers had to express their personalities and judgment. And if you were suddenly turning it into what I called a content-based education, where you taught things, then you lost that opportunity to kind of express yourself, I thought, and exercise judgment, set forward an inquiry-based education system. And I remember just before I left, uh, a school inspector came into my classroom and he stood at the door and he watched. And there were children with strings going across the classroom with paper aeroplanes zooming along the strings. There were kids making things out of wood. There were children writing. There were children reading. There were some children doing something with something else in a corner. There were children looking out the window. And I thought, I wonder what he's going to make of this. And he just stood there for a while. And then he walked round, and he started asking the children questions. And I thought, oh, what's going to happen here? And he came up to me and he said, for the first time in my career as an inspector, I'm in a classroom where real education is taking place. <laughs> this is a wonderful compliment. So what I learned later was, of course, that approach. Well, yes, it was. That approach to learning and education is what we might call coaching and mentoring. That ability of setting up some kind of investigation or inquiry or discussion by the use of open questions to stimulate curiosity, that carried with me always. That's kind of how I got into it, really. But also, I was working in management development for a commercial company, and I was development programs, and that's the way I did those. I used to organize these management development programs on the basis of a series of questions. I'd get everybody to kind of discuss them and work them. We didn't turn up with all the materials and the, and the flip chart overhead transparencies as they were in those days. I used to run a whole two-day course on the basis of questions. I used to do it like that. And then an opportunity came for me to uh, do a PhD. And I thought, well, I'll have to look at 
look at mentoring and look at this thing about asking questions and how it might work. So that's how I got there, really. Thank you. And I, I love the aspect that it, that your career covered everyone from small kids to leaders to management people, yeah, yeah. which is a big breath. So yes. You have a lot of experience in applying it. What catches my attention is that you use coaching and mentoring in parallel. Yes. And I would be curious on, on your distinction between the two of them. Is there uh, a difference between the two of them in your perspective? Funny, that's a great question. I've just been having coffee with a colleague of mine who I've not seen for a long time because of COVID. And uh, we go out to town and have a cup of coffee today. And it was really nice. And he said to me, I remember talking to you, Bob, years ago about the differences between coaching and mentoring. And I thought it was very clear and very defined, but you always seem so relaxed about it. And I said, yeah, I still am relaxed about it because there was a period of time when the coaching world was emerging and a lot of books started to emerge which were critical of mentoring and elevating coaching and then what started to happen is people who wrote about mentoring used to criticize coaching and try to elevate uh, mentoring so there seems to be a kind of competition that went on around the kind of 2000s up to about 2005 10 that sort of period and i always thought that was ridiculous Um, and I remember being in running a workshop for Heineken Brewery in Amsterdam. Um, I was there running this workshop on mentoring. And we got to the first coffee break in the morning and uh, somebody came up to me and said, Bob, I think you're talking about coaching. And I said, oh, really? Am I? Tell me what you think mentoring is then. And they explained it. And I said, ah, oh, that's what I might call coaching. That was the first realization that clearly different people viewed these things differently. From then on, I've always thought that they were part of what I would call helping activities. A helping activity is one where you're helping somebody else to think something through or resolve a problem or a challenge or, or whatever it happens to be. And I've always thought that the approach you take must depend on the person that you're working with. If men, I'm not an advice giver, I wouldn't give advice, but I would share experience as data to be discussed. So, and you might call that mentoring. Sometimes that's appropriate to do that because it builds relationship. And I've always thought this idea of completely non-directive coaching is rather silly, particularly if you're supposed to be building relationship. I mean, how can you build a relationship without saying anything about yourself and about your I'll experience? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think you also have to acknowledge that as a coach, your questions must come from somewhere. And you could say they come from the person you're working with. And in some ways they do, but sometimes they come from you and your background and your experience. So I've always thought in terms of in service of client in service of the person you're working with and your ground rules that you establish that you engage in a in a discussion about what seems to be appropriate for them and whatever i do do i usually ask permission so if i say i've got this idea here you know is it okay for me to share my experience on this and whether we can talk about it so you are strong in contracting yeah oh very 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 strong yes i think it's vital It was the subject of my PhD, actually. <laughs> oh. And what, what was the main result of your PhD? 
Well, it was what was called the dimensions framework. And it's looking at the dimensions that go on in, in a mentoring relationship, but you could equally apply it to coaching. I identified a number of dimensions and one was called the content dimension, which was to do with how open or closed is the conversation that you're having. So open might be very free reigning and involving personal things, professional things, kind of anything's on the table. And closed might be focused on something quite specific. Part of the negotiation is to get an understanding about what that might be. What does that person want to talk about and expect to talk about? I call that the content line. And then I have, uh, then the other line was the public private. So that's to do with confidentiality. Who knows about it? Who needs to know about it? What is it they need to know about it? How public is this relationship? How private is this? So that was also discussed. The other was about activity. Who does what as a result of this relationship? What are my expectations as a coach or a mentor of the person I'm working with? What are their expectations of me? What are their expectations of themselves? How active, how passive are they going to be? Or, or how am I going to be? Then there's the what I call the administration line. And I call that how formal or informal is this relationship? So formality would be dates in the diary, booking things in advance, taking notes, perhaps sharing those notes, agreeing what time you meet, how long you meet for, uh, what you do if you want to change the meeting, uh, how do you agree on meeting in between meetings, things like that. Uh, I always work towards the formal end always because I find that if it's too informal, it often falls apart. I try to work up the formal end. The final dimension I called the stable, unstable line, and it was to do with being consistent in your practice with people. And that if you were going to change the way you work, change the process you were going to use, then you needed to talk about it. Otherwise, it could make the relationship unstable. And there was a recognition that all those dimensions can possibly change as the relationship progresses. So you have to have a regular review of those. I'm smiling. Is that? I wrote my master's degree thesis on psychological contracts and all these dimensions you are mentioning, I can find some of them in, in my in the series that I've been engaged with. I'm like, wow, I found common ground. Common point here. So a number of things caught my attention in what you've been saying. And one of them was that your questions must be coming from somewhere. Let me just jump back to that part. And some of the coaches that I speak with say that their questions come from their knowledge of coaching, which is a separate profession, which has nothing to do with the knowledge base of the client, which has nothing to do with the industry or the environment. It is just about coaching, the knowledge about humans and change. How, how would you reflect on that? Sometimes that's the case, I think. Sometimes that is the case, that there are certain things that you might, know in terms of your skill set that come from ways of phrasing questions that you could say well that's a coaching type question but on the other hand i think it's more than that because there is something very important about being genuine and authentic and kind of meaning it when you're working with people and i think there's a risk that if you just technique somebody then i don't think it works very well you know, and you have to kind of believe in it, really. 
I'm also of the view that sometimes it really doesn't matter how you phrase a question because your client will turn it into whatever they want it to. And I often say this to the people that I work with who are learning coaching, don't worry too much about the question you ask if it's clumsy or if it's a closed one and they meant it to be an open one because there's a good chance your client will turn it into what they want it to be. So you can't ignore the skilled abilities of the client you're working with. And a lot of coaching research, uh, coaching books, ignore the fact that the client might be very skilled at answering their own questions. They're too busy focused on what the coach does. The concept of coachability. Yeah. What what was the Coachability. You just had this reaction. That, like, yeah, well, I think everybody has the potential to be coached. And I think coachability is another kind of made-up expression, really. And a lot depends on that person's orientation, their need uh, at any particular time, and they're likely to be more receptive or not. But, I mean, a piece of research that I supervised fairly not that long ago with a colleague of mine who did a PhD was called the Skilled Coachee. And he identified a number of characteristics of a skilled coachee in their ability to deflect questions, turn them into a joke, uh, not answer them, change the subject, all sorts of things. Now, you could put that under coachability, but you could also say they're being quite skilled and engaging in this kind of social conversational process. Yeah, no, as you just brought these examples, I was thinking about self-defense mechanisms. Oh, yeah. Or, or uncoachability. Yes, um, People can can control the agenda as the coachee if they want to. I think they don't want to go there, they won't go there. If they do want to go there, they will. I, I mean, I've seen it myself when I've been coached. There are times when I've, I call it, I just throw a bone out and see what comes back. And I know very well I'm being a bit flippant. And I like to see how the coach is going to deal with it. <laughs> Well, I guess that's that's part of the relationship building when we are just testing the limits of the other person. Exactly. How they are reacting to what is going on between the two of us. Yes. Playing all games. Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And games get played. They certainly do sometimes. Yeah. And there is a usual bit of a fluxing in the beginning of a, of a coaching relationship. Well, that's my experience. That sure. we, we just play out, we just contract informally, it's, it's... sometimes unconsciously on what, what will happen. Or what yes. could happen between the two of us. Sure. It's a dynamic process. And so it's likely to change. And both parties have to kind of adapt and change as it goes along and be aware of it. And again, one of the things I know from research into mentoring is one of the key things in the success of mentoring relationships is that both parties pay attention to the relationship and regularly discuss it. They're aware about what's going on. And we are talking, and you mentioned the the dynamic nature of these conversations. What I'm thinking about is how can research follow or assess such a dynamic thing as a coaching and and or mentoring relationship, which may change from minute to minute or from second to second even, because that seems to be a, a big challenge for yes, me. It is indeed. And and I think, it, firstly, I think it's recognizing that coaching is a social process and social processes are dynamic. They move. It is sometimes like trying to grab a bar of soap in the shower, <laughs> you know, just <laughs> slips out of your hand. But I think what you can do with research is you can get glimpses, you can get snapshots, you can build 
patterns sometimes depends on the questions that you ask, the way in which you interpret them. And often the results of the research are inevitably going to be in this particular case, in this particular instance, this is what we found. Now, there may be transferability into other settings, but it doesn't necessarily prove anything, but it just sheds light. It gets the torch and it shines it on it and says, let's think about this and think about how it shows up. If you take the subject of the skilled coachee, for example, that research shone a big light on it and said, let's start thinking about it and what that might mean. And you could see that contributing to the development of the coach's abilities in working with different groups of people. There are so many different ways, different methodologies of research out there. What's your experience? Are any of them more favorable? Are any of them more capable of grasping these complexities that are in coaching and mentoring? Or okay. do you have a favorite? Yeah, okay. I think... It all depends on how you answer the question, what is truth in research? Mm. And Enlighten me. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are many ways in which things can be true. So the idea of multiple truths is something which I'm always interested in. And when I'm looking at research, I often think, what is the truth position that's in this research? And then you can assess the research accordingly. So, for example, one way of recognizing truth is what I would call the correspondence version of truth, which would mean that what you're seeing in your research corresponds with something that you may have seen in practice uh, with other people or come across before in the literature or whatever. And you can say, therefore, there's an element of truth because it's been observable elsewhere, perhaps. And often a correspondence truth will do that through a particular methodology, which will involve statistics with an assumption that if you do this, this is what's going to happen. So cause and effect methodology. And that's a perfectly legitimate way of doing research. The problem with it is, is that sometimes with the dynamic issue of, of, uh, of coaching or mentoring is that it's a moving object and that sort of research treats it as if it's fixed and it might be fixed for the time being so fair enough it can shed light it can shine the light on something which which is helpful another version of truth could be called the consensus view of truth which is quite simply if lots of people say it there must be an element of truth in it yeah and that again would generate some sort of statistical look at something and you might even take very simple statistics and say so many percent people say this which you might say from a survey that in a sense would have a legitimacy to a sense of truth lots of people say it not many people do therefore it has an element of truth to it those correspondence and consensus views of truth tend to look at broad brushstrokes and say this is the general pattern of things and you talk in terms of we can generalize this out into other areas but then there are other forms a research could sometimes have a a pragmatic version of truth which means well if it works it must be true and so you kind of would explore something from the point of view of what, what's working here and there are very strong research methodologies about how things work um, one of them is called realist evaluation for example and and you would look at Uh, if if something's working, let's look at how it works. And that's 
going to be a version of truth because it works. It's practical. Um, it has an application and it seems to make sense. So, again, that could be a version. And then you have, um, I can't remember the, the word now, the fourth one. Um, it's to do with the kind of logical argument. It kind of makes sense. If you say, you know, create a logical argument and say, it seems to be like this and your argument stacks up, you could say that also could be a version of truth. So four truth positions, each of which will generate its own kind of methodologies and ways of working. And I think what's important is that all of them are scientific if they are done in detail, rigorously, carefully, and with adherence to certain ethical principles. And then, and then there's a good chance that it's a reasonable piece of research. What statistical research does, cause and effect research does, is broad strokes, as I said. But what more phenomenological research does is very detailed accounts of things. So you can look at lovely pieces of research which are done on cause and effect methodology, and you can get the broad strokes, but they don't necessarily say anything about the details of the relationship. You know, there are fors and against for different approaches to research. So glad that you brought this in, because for over a number of practitioners I've talked to, research is mostly about the statistics, or this is how we, or a number of us, grasp the methodology, question yes. survey. Yes. And these yeah. four truth positions just can give us a springboard for thinking about other kinds of researches. And that yes. we can all we can take all of these different types of methodologies, different types of researches seriously. Yeah, absolutely. And, and my position is that we are still at the kind of beginning of understanding how this whole helping activities work. And please um, give your counter argument if you think we are somewhere else. Yes, and bringing in as many types of researches, as many different angles or different torches as you have mentioned, yes. would be very valuable for the whole yes. profession. I think it's been very unhelpful because there have been a number of voices, particularly in the coaching world, which talks about the control group study as the only piece of research worth doing. Well, I've always thought that was utter nonsense. And I would also say that it's the only sort of research because there are many others and control group will tell you something. Of course it will, but it won't necessarily tell you everything. So I think about a whole variety of different approaches is likely to build a much richer picture of what's going on. And each will serve different kinds of purposes. And I think it's important to understand that that's what research does. All of them are scientific. Take a look at the current status of coaching research, what we know about how this whole relationship works. And let me use just coaching instead of coaching slash mentoring. Yes. Yeah. And considering where we are, you know this field. We have published a number of books, supervised a number of researches. What, what is the most interesting field or aspect of coaching and mentoring for you? It's all interesting. I told you it was a way of life, Zolly. It's a way of life. I'm currently involved in through PhD supervision. Okay. Oh, I can tell you quite a lot. One piece of research, this person has just passed their PhD, and they were looking at coachy-centered coaching, specifically with an understanding of how different learning theories might play out in the coaching. The argument that understanding learning theory and the context in which the coaching takes place becomes very important. 
And this kind of challenges the idea that the coach is this kind of neutral person who doesn't understand the context. This research sheds a bit of light on that. It also sheds a bit of light on the fact that current competencies from two of the main professional bodies aren't really adequate in terms of how they deal with learning theories and how they deal with contexts in which these things happen. That was that piece of research, really interesting. And as I said, he's just passed. That was interesting. I've got somebody probably the most difficult and challenging piece of research that I'm supervising at the moment is from a PhD student. And this person is so intelligent, it's frightening. They are looking at meaning in coaching conversations. Meaning. I don't think we could have a long conversation on oh. the meaning of meaning itself. This is exactly the point. Where we are with it is she's writing up at the moment. Where we are is that it's fragments. And meaning isn't necessarily shared between two people. But meaning is sometimes there. It's often fragments. And they might get pieced together like a jigsaw puzzle. But sometimes they disappear and you might lose a piece on the floor. She says it's a bit like archaeology where you kind of scrape away the soil and find things. She says it's also a bit like a bar of soap in the shower, which I mentioned earlier, that it kind of slips and moves and changes around. One of her conclusions is meaning is not a thing. It is not an object. It is sometimes highly complex, emotional, full of feelings. Often it's fleeting and it moves. What would be the practical relevance of such a study for the practitioners. So if I get the feedback, you know, I, I read this fantastic research from a frighteningly intelligent person, which says at the end, well, meaning is a fragmented something and you are lucky if you are connected to your client that sometimes, and you are even more lucky if you don't lose parts of the puzzle, then what can I take away from that as a practitioner? How could, so to what could it inspire me? And I know that yeah. you may just answer that, well, that's my meaning, so <laughs> go and find my meaning in that. I would say it might say to those that think in a particular way or have a particular truth position, there's an alternative to this. So stop trying to see coaching as something that's going to improve performance or it's you know got some kind of pragmatic outcome or whatever. But sometimes there is value in just having the conversation and the meaning that somebody takes from it is the meaning they take from it and stop worrying about it. Because that could, could lead me to the whole area of, of measuring coaching outcomes. Well, exactly. Or... Her research is saying, why do that? I know that in business contexts, management are completely obsessed with that sort of thing. And her position is well it's a bit of a waste of time actually to do that what is important is if somebody thinks that they are getting something useful from it well that's fair enough so it's that's, that's an argument that i would take to to my clients who are interested in return on investment numbers and percentages and stuff I'd, like I'd that tell you something else which is something that i've done some work with is that Reversing to numbers is a sign of very poor leadership mm. because numbers have nothing to do with human beings. 
people behave in all sorts of ways and numbers can often get in the way. And we forget that a number is not necessarily a fact. A number is something which is interpreted just as a word is interpreted. So you can look at a word, a number and think, oh, what does that mean within this particular context? And it could mean a number of things. And so could a word. So this kind of total reliance on numbers is a bit of a fallacy. I think it's a falsehood. It worries me. I would I, be curious on what you think on the on the trend of HR analytics that seems to be topping a number of charts recently, seeming to be the most important thing or challenge for HR leaders. I, I cannot quote the research that came up with this, but I, I clearly remember seeing a number of these surveys that yeah, yes. making meaning there, more ethical data gathering and stuff like that were are on the challenge list of HR people. Well, you, you can become a slave to themselves, doesn't it? Self-fulfilling, if you like. I worked in management development for a while. Uh, I think I mentioned that earlier. Mm-hmm. And um, my boss was probably the best boss I've ever had. And he said I, it was a very successful business. He was mm-hmm. a director of this company. And he said to me, in this company, we don't have targets. And I'll tell you why we don't have targets. We don't have targets because it will distort your behavior. What I'm interested in is what do you do to get business? That was his question. What do you do to get business? And if we're not focusing on that, we're not going to get the business that we want. If all we're doing is focusing on the numbers, it will distort behavior and it won't allow you to pursue your interests. So how do you go about getting business, he used to say, always used to say it, all the time. And you used to have to sit and talk about how you made relationships with clients, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Not, I achieved so many sales this week. He wasn't interested in it. You say this, I, I can see some people I know who would immediately reply with, yeah, that's why we have goals, to distort your behavior towards getting more business. Yes, yes. But is that ethical? Is that ethical to do that? You know, surely, surely ethical practice is not threatening somebody with numbers and piling pressure on them to achieve more and more and more. Uh, surely it's engaging with them as human beings and working out what their interest is and why they do their job and learning how to do that job better rather than chase a number. <laughs> and, and with all this in mind, then, then I'm really curious on your opinion about setting goals in coaching because a number of coaching processes do start with 360 surveys that well you need to improve at least two points in your peer review about conflict management so yes it's i call them funny numbers who makes the decision that that person's rated four and they've got to be six by the end of the year who makes that decision it's a human being it's a subjective judgment being exercised with the pretense that it's objective and it's not it's subjective Mm -hmm. Goals sometimes are appropriate because it's important to remember that some people relate to goals. On the other hand, it's also important to recognize that some people don't relate to goals. And I'm somebody who doesn't relate to goals, which is why I loved working for my management development company. I made them loads of money because they just let me do what I liked to do. And off I went and did it, you know, to the best of my ability. And it generated income for them. Uh, lots of it <laughs> but at the end of the day they they got their goals met of course they did it's just the way you do it so 
Some people relate to goals. Some people don't. There's a concept which I'm working with people at the moment, which is comes from an old English word. It's called to coddy womple. And coddy womple means you go purposefully towards an unspecified destination. And I quite like that idea. You, you enact your life purposefully, but you're not quite sure where it's going. And um, this idea of goals being the be all and end all is, is also a fallacy. And sometimes it can lead. I, know, I can remember, for example, in the UK, the government of the time privatized the railway system. There were targets for the trains, uh, time targets. And if they didn't achieve those targets, the train companies got fined. Uh, they had to pay a fine, big fine, uh, like a thousand pounds a minute for a delay, you know, big fines. So imagine if a train's an hour late, you know, ooh, 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 that's a lot of money. What started to happen is that the train companies started to alter the timetables to build and being in, late. Yeah, to build in delays and time lapses and so on and so forth. Despite the fact that the timetable would say it's going to take this long to get from there to there, um, the trains would meet it quite often because of the way the timetable was constructed, which enabled them to have a little bit of leeway and time built into it. I mean, imagine if you were to set a police officer a target of making so many arrests a week. For example, I mean, what's that going to do to the police officer's behaviour, do you think? You know, there's more than one way of gaining an arrest. I see where this conversation is going. <laughs> <laughs> but you see, you see, targets can sometimes mislead and they can, they can be destructive of people uh, because people will find ways of manipulating them to suit their own ends and this is exactly what my manager's point was is we don't want to play games and manipulate numbers we want to talk about how we work how we get business how we relate to people how do we do that as we are talking about this i have to admit to all of our listeners that we had previous conversations that uh, you know one of our previous conversations you mentioned an author who was speaking about different trends or discourses around coaching research or around, yes. around the interpretation of the of the development of the profession, let's call it yes. this way. Yeah, yeah. And this is when this previous conversation comes to my mind that perhaps some of the things that we that we want to understand through research, like effect of goals or whatever else, they may be out of the scope of research uh -huh. as a tool. And I would be just interested in, but I would like to ask you to bring in that, those discourses that you have mentioned for me previously. Yeah, yeah. now this, I think this is very important because the idea of discourse is that it's a way in which people talk. It's to do with the language that they use and what that means. So, I mean, for example, to illustrate, I sometimes, if I'm speaking at a conference or whatever, I will sometimes look at the group of people that I'm working with and I say, how many women in this room have ever been called bossy? And a lot of women will put their hands up and say, yes, I've been called bossy in my time. 
And then you say, how many men in the room have ever been called bossy? And sometimes a few men will put their hands up, but not many. And I say, well, okay, that is a what I would call an example of a gendered discourse, which is women are bossy, men are good leaders. Yep. Or men are assertive, women are bossy. So it's a language which goes through societies and it shapes opinions, viewpoints and behaviours. And it's often based on an interpretation. So, I mean, another good example, some people may be familiar with a very famous English novel uh, by George Orwell called Animal Farm. And in Animal Farm, the animals take over the farm and the pigs become in charge and they issue slogans. And one of the first slogans is four legs, good, two legs, bad. And that's one of the first slogans or to support the animals, although the chickens are very happy about that. Anyway, so story goes on. Those slogans change and it starts to become different and they alter so that there's a different discourse emerging. So that's what discourses are about. They're very important. We can't underestimate the power of them. And politicians know about discourses and they use them all the time to shape public opinion about things. So Simon Weston, who published a book called Coaching and Mentoring a Critical Something or Another, a critical review or something like that. In that book, he identified four main discourses which can be found within the coaching in particular and to some extent the mentoring world. And one discourse he called the Psy Expert Discourse, which is the discourse which is influenced by psychology, particularly in the coaching world. That will be very much surrounding cause and effect thinking. It will very often have a performative element to it. And the discourse would say performance is the product of people who don't perform have got some kind of psychological interference going on and the coach's job is to identify the interference deal with it and then they'll perform that's the logic the service person yeah or the or the psi expert discourse would introduce uh psychometric analysis of things your 360 degree it's about it's underpinned by psychological ideas okay so another discourse that Weston identified is he called it managerialist discourse. It's very much what you would hear in organizations, which is measurement, uh, return on investment. It would be keep things simple, don't complicate them. And he argued that managerialist discourse was very much about coaching the person in role rather than coaching the person. So you're working with the person within that particular context, if you like. Um, and he argued that the psi expert and the, and the managerialist had certain similarities to each other in terms of their understanding of cause and effect thinking, if you like. But the two other discourses he identified, well, the other one was called the soul guide. And the soul guide discourse is sometimes, I don't know if you've experienced this, I'm sure you have, because most coaches have when you talk to them is when you're working with a manager or an executive or whatever, and they start raising questions about the meaning of life 
about what am I doing? What am I doing here doing this job? And what else could I do in life? You know, and that's quite a common experience. And Weston called this the soul guide approach. And it's where the coach would work with people's understanding and sense of who they are and their meanings in life. I experience that quite often. Perhaps it's something about me, but it often appears in our conversation. Yes, some of those as well. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. And then the fourth discourse he talked about was called the network guide. And this, he argued, was, and I think this is really interesting, because he was arguing this nearly 10 years ago. This is where this book came out, nearly 10 years ago. And he called it the network guide. And I think what's happened as a result of COVID is that this has come true, is that we are now, all of us, I mean, you're sitting somewhere in Hungary, I'm sitting somewhere in the UK, we are connected and you'd be connected with people in different parts of the world. I get on the thing that we're on now, Zoom, day in, day out, and I speak to people all over the world. And that really had taken off before. But what Weston said almost as a kind of prophecy is that there's a new form of business coming, which is called the networked organization, where people interact with all sorts of different people. And the coach, its function is to help people understand that system that they're part of, that network that they're part of, uh, and learn the differences and the challenges of interacting within that different kind of network. And I think that's quite an interesting, interesting idea. So, I mean, a lot of coaches are very likely to recognize that in the work that they do now, I would think, particularly if they've, if they've moved online in the way many of us have. I think that kind, those four ideas show up in terms of what people think about coaching and also how professional bodies organize themselves. And I think I would argue that professional bodies organize themselves mainly around the managerialist and site expert discourses because that's where the business comes from. Having said that, a coach who is able to work with their client in a variety of ways, which we talked about earlier, might indeed find themselves engaging in the other discourses and having some kind of understanding of that could be useful. What is really inspiring for me from the research perspective is that I can easily imagine the first two discourses to be to be addressed with the tools of scientific measurement. Yes. But the third one is a bit of a, you know, a, what was your analogy? A, a, a soap in the shower. Yes. Like addressing the meaning of life or spirituality. Yes, it's something that can be out of the scope of research or coaching research. Yeah, and, and probably, for the and yeah. the whole network organization thing is a bit more systematic. Yes, I'm listening to you, so it's not just about the coach-coach relationship, but it's more about the system, whole, whole system. Yes, in which they are working together. Yeah, exactly. Which could again be a challenge for being for research and for yes. the typical tools 
or methodologies that we as researchers are using? Well, some people have, have moved in that direction. And uh, there is a tool in sociology called network analysis, which helps people to understand the networks they're part of and, and uh, where the political influence is, where, where the power is, where the dynamics are, where the knowledge is held all those sorts of things. And uh, network analysis is a particular research tool, which uh, I've supervised some research using it a few times. And it's very, very interesting because it can explain a lot about organizational life by analyzing the networks that people are attached to or not. And what's interesting is senior managers are very rarely well connected to the network. And the people who are connected to the network are middle managers always. Are you aware of research or any studies that examined the third discourse, so meaning or spirituality? So studies that you, that you would consider to be precise or thorough enough to be called research? Yeah, my good friend who sadly died last year, his own PhD was on spirit within organizations what is the human spirit within organizations and how does it work so it had kind of leanings towards culture but there was spirituality within that not necessarily religious belief but the idea of a kind of spiritual being and harmony and that sort of thing there was a book published a long time ago which i reviewed once called the soul at work and it was about our very humanity which can get driven out in organizations. Organizations can be quite brutal places to be. And yet we're human beings. And we have souls or whatever else we like to call them. <laughs> and so yes, that exists. Well as this question is that sometimes I do sense harsh distinction or a or a strong boundary between people who have an openness towards spirituality or who are strong believers and how they approach or how they receive ideas from the research world. So I could call these two kinds of people. I know I'm I'm strongly boxing people here. Uh-huh. The r- rational and believer kind of people. And I'm sorry for boxing. So I, <laughs> and why I'm glad to hear about these researches or these projects is that there can be a bridge there. Yeah, yeah. We we can bring spirituality or other more subjective subjects under the lenses of research. Yeah. And we can connect different words, different discourses, different understandings yes. of how we are living or who we are working as professionals. I refer sometimes to some of the people in ancient Greece who had great wisdom, and one of them being Aristotle. Aristotle described as the last man on earth who knew everything there was to know about everything in the known world. So good old Aristotle. And he said, it's the sign of an educated person who can entertain and consider an opposite point of view without agreeing with it. And I think that's really interesting because I think there's far too much polarity which goes on in our world of opposites. And I think very often trying to understand, and I think this is one of the challenges of humankind, is trying to understand somebody else's point of view without necessarily agreeing with it. 
And it's very hard. It's very hard to do that. And yet Aristotle was talking about it a very, very long time ago. And that seems to me to be very wise. I agree. And for me, in my reading, that is one of the one of the central points of our profession of being able to help someone with whom we don't agree with. Exactly. 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 And I think you can say that's largely the case with lots of helping professions. I just to give an extreme example. My sister used to work in, I don't know if you use the same word in, in your country, but she worked in the probation service, which is the criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. And her job was to visit prisoners in prison, also to help to keep them out of prison once they'd been released. You know, that's what she did. And she said that in her office, nobody ever wanted to work with a sex offender. Somebody had to, and they had to find a way of engaging with these people. And I thought, wow, that's quite powerful, extremely challenging and very, very difficult. And that's what she used to have to do. Or a murderer. Even just imagining these situations. Is Somebody has to engage with them. Yeah. And my sister said, and that was me. <laughs> Big yeah. respect. Yeah. Yeah. Challenging. Very challenging. Very difficult. As we raise this bridge, or I have this image of, of having bridges, or a capability to consider opposing viewpoints at the same time, linking yes. them together. And I frequently hear the about the opposition of research and practice, or researchers and practitioners in the coaching and mentoring <laughs> world. What's your advice? How could we bridge the gap? Right. I'm going, I'm going to quote something now. There is nothing as practical as a good theory. I love it. And the reason why I said, and I'll give an example. This actually happened to me a few years ago. I was at a trade fair, you know, an, an exhibition. I was wandering around and there was a guy standing at one of the stalls there. And he had, uh, he had a sign above his stall, which said, theory free zone. Okay. So I went up to him and said, oh, hi, well, this is really interesting. What do you do? And he said, I work with small businesses in helping them with finance and cash flow and those sorts of things. And I said, oh, okay, on what basis do you work with them? And he said, well, I have this framework and what I do is this, this, and this, and I discuss this with them and so on. And it helps them think about these things. So I said, looked at him and I said, so how is that not a theory? And he went, what do you do? I said, I'm an academic. And he said, I thought so. <laughs> But it's true. He had a model or a framework of working with people. That was his theory. You can't live life without one. What underpins what it is that you talk about and what you do? You know, if you're a coach, what underpins what you do? It's not nothing, because if it were, you can't be doing anything. So you must have some framework, frame of reference that you work to, and you can call that a theory. <laughs> I very much agree. And um, in another conversation with someone else, well, my partner came up with the idea of uh, practitioner, researcher, hybrid or hybrid identities. And he said that every practitioner is a researcher because with all the conversations they are having, they, they are at least unconsciously collecting 
information they are making, they are probing their theory if it works or not. Yes. Well, they yeah. could be. They. I don't think they are necessarily. I don't think they are. I think what is key between a practitioner and a practitioner who is working with the idea of research is that they subject their work to critical thought and you you think about it and you reflect on it and you generate some kind of understanding as a result of doing that and some practitioners do that but i don't think all practitioners do i think some practitioners just exist and don't necessarily reflect on what they do very straightforward question but but not for you is that how could we promote this critical thought or critical thinking on the frameworks we are using and how could we integrate that into professional training so or courses there's a research methodology which uh came out of education it would be teachers who would do this kind of research and it's called action research and this is the kind of research that practitioners in coaching might find interesting and useful and what action research is is about examining and looking at your own practice and a lot of teachers research is about looking at how they teach and what seems to work and what doesn't seem to work so it's quite pragmatic and practical but it's focused on their own practice and i think that's something that coaches could learn to do and yeah it's got a name there's all sorts of research action research is what it's called and engaging in looking at that i think could be very useful for people and this sounds like supervision i this may be a big big leap here but that's my fantasy that that well being in proper supervision should bring similar results because supervision should be about structured revision of of my practice or the things I'm doing in my practice. I think that supervision is a good thing. I think it, is, it can be very useful for people. I think that the way it's positioned in some of the professional bodies shows that they don't completely understand what it's about. And I've challenged that in the past. But the idea that somebody in some way or another and it can take lots of forms. It doesn't have to take one particular form. It could take lots of forms that somebody who is practicing this thing we call coaching spends time talking about it with other people who do it and considering their own behaviors in relation to that must be a good thing it has to be a good thing it's the way in which practice gets developed and shared so i think it's important i think where i have a problem is that sometimes supervision can be positioned as a normative process and that's and it's also kind of promoted and advertised as a quality assurance thing and i think that means that you have to comply with the rules of the professional body and therefore supervision could be a form of surveillance in order to get people to do what they're supposed to do and i think that's not how i see it as a learning and development process or action research if you like uh, where people talk about their practice and in that way they improve so in that sense they could be quality as people improve but not necessarily quality assurance which is to do with compliance i think it's a subtle difference <laughs> yeah, definitely and and what i wanted to mention is that i i really like the systems level to the system level reflections you are making as we are having this conversation one of the themes 
I'm hearing from practitioners is that besides the conferences and besides being a, a member of one body or another, then the coaching is a is a lonely profession. Oh yeah, and indeed. However, as we are having this conversation, I see a now more and more systemic aspects of being in the profession. And yes, and I'm happy that this came out because. I do think that we should all consider us as members of the of system of the coaching world yes. and not just as as members there, but from a research perspective as well. That I think all coaching research in one way or in the other should consider the system or the wider environment. Without research, there can't be a profession. <laughs> That's Agreed. a big statement. <laughs> that's a big statement because unless there's research informing what good professional practice is it can't develop and it can't progress and therein lies a bit of a challenge i think for professional bodies unless they regularly and consistently review their own practices in the light of research and i think there's the challenge is they stay stagnant they get stagnant they don't move and they simply become kind of controllers so i have a big question for professional bodies currently how seriously do you take research and are you running a business or are you running something which is useful for the coaching profession and i think that's for me it's a very serious question a very serious question thanks for that invite as the next guest <laughs> for that question <laughs> i don't know someone mm. Someone. But that's an, an important question, and I, I can hear the weight of it. Yes. And I can I, sense it as a former VP of research for EMCC. Yes, I, sure. So I do sense the weight of that question. It's a big question. It's a big question, and research has to be taken seriously and looked at, and practice has to be reviewed in the light of it. And I think there's a big risk in professional bodies of putting something out there that they've developed from conversations with practitioners and they're calling it research they're putting it out there and they live by it instead of saying actually it's time to review it in light of new research well this is a learning curve <laughs> a learning loop for everyone involved both for practitioners both for academics both for organizations oh yeah absolutely absolutely for, for lots of people and people will be in different places different positions about these things when I was doing management consultancy, I once got involved in trying to facilitate a merger. I don't know how I got involved in it. I just said yes, and it was a nightmare. I can remember the big boss saying to me at the end of the work that I'd done, he said, those that were anti have become skeptics. Those that have were skeptics have become quite enthusiastic. And those who were enthusiastic have become even more enthusiastic. But some new people who don't believe have joined in at the bottom now. <laughs> and I thought, what an interesting way of thinking about how different people are in different places. It's like a kind of movement that goes on. And actually, the kind of vision that you would hope to see in a, in a professional body is in the way that we treat coaching as a kind of exploration when you get in the coaching room with somebody which is going to last a period of time, 
running a professional body needs to be an exploration of what that means. It needs to update itself in the light of new evidence. And there's a challenge. There's a challenge. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for this thought. And uh, pleasure. amazed by how quickly time flies. I actually have hundreds of other questions, but I, you know, <laughs> let me ask just two ones. One, one is, is there a piece of research, anything, either done by you or by others, that you would love that everyone out in the field would have read it? So is there something that you would like everyone to read and to know of? <laughs> oh... I think for me, one of the most significant is the skilled coachee. I think that's something which needs to be looked at. And if people want to read it, they can find it in a chapter in my book. It's a chapter in there called The Skilled Coachee. It's the product of that research which looked at it. And I think it's worth, worth looking at and worth reading because I think it can change the way in which you might view your practice. And I think that's important. But I think there are other pieces of research like learning theory informed could influence your practice as well. Many other people have called for this coach needs to understand learning theories. I think that's important. Context becomes important. I mean, there's lots of things that people could read, but I think trying to recognize that your coachee is very skilled at being a coachee is quite important, I think, to understand what that's about. And you know, I have a, a final question, which can be as long as you would like to. Is there anything else that you would like to share, would, that you would like to speak up for? For me, I'll go back to the beginning and just say, for me, coaching is a way of life. It is not a box of tools. It's a way in which we can relate with people and make a serious difference. Coaching's applications can provide good for wider society. And I'll just say that one of the organizations that I'm involved in in the UK provides what we call community coaching. And what that's about is you become a member, you pay your fee to become a member, and you donate free time to coach people in the community on all sorts of things. But we've had various pieces of work on hate crime, on uh, dysfunctional families, various things like that, litter in the city. And we've employed coaching to help us do that kind of work. And we don't get paid for it. It's a condition of your membership that you donate your time for free. And I think that that's important to recognize that there's lots of applications. And sometimes working in that kind of way can provide insights into your commercial side of coaching, which you never even dreamed of. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Zolly. Yeah. Good to see you. You too. Thank you for the conversation. Hope to talk to you very soon again. Thank you for listening to On Coaching Podcast where I have curious conversations with world-renowned coaches and researchers. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to rate us and subscribe. I also invite you to visit zoltanchigesh.com, where you can access more resources regarding the coaching industry. Be well!